Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. My sermon last Sunday night got me thinking about preaching the grace of God and salvation, preaching the doctrine of justification. You'll remember that I called us all, if you were here, that I called us all vile sinners and then said that God was still making something of you. And in that, I was trying to encapsulate the doctrine of justification, which is what this passage is also about. Um, when When a preacher says what the Apostle Paul says in this passage, he opens himself up to certain charges. He opens himself up to the charge of antinomianism. And what is antinomianism? Since I use big words, I have to define them. Anti, against, nomianism, the law. As if the Christian life is only justification and there is no exhortations toward holiness, right? No exhortations, no like go and do this. That's what antinomianism is. And a lot of, a lot of denominations... Um, are antinomian. Now, if you know anything about me, and if you've listened to my preaching for even six months, you know I'm not an antinomian. But I wish I was accused of it more often. What do I mean by that? Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my heroes in the face, says that it is simply an occupational hazard of preachers if they intend to preach grace, that they'll be accused of antinomianism. He says this in his exposition of Romans 6, and Romans 6, you know, is, is addressing that question straight on. Shall we sin that grace may abound? And he says, no, right after he says that you're saved by grace, right? But no, you don't sin so that grace may abound. There are still commands. But he, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, the true preaching of the gospel is salvation by grace alone. That's a central doctrine in the Reformed Church. The true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of the charge of antinomianism being brought against it. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it, And misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. 
You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. He goes on. A couple more paragraphs, but I want, want you to pick this up. If a man preaches justification by works, no one would ever raise this question. If a man's preaching is, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to go to heaven, you must stop committing sins, you must take up good works, and if you do so regularly and constantly and do not fail to keep on at it, you will make yourselves Christians. You will reconcile yourselves to God, and you will go to heaven. Obviously, a man who preaches in that strain would never be liable to this misunderstanding. Nobody would say to such a man, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because the man's whole emphasis is just that. That if you go on sinning, you are certain to be damned, and only if you stop sinning can you save yourself. So that misunderstanding could never arise with somebody who preaches justification by works. Nobody, this is still Lloyd-Jones, nobody has ever brought this charge against the Church of Rome. But it was brought frequently against Martin Luther. Indeed, that was precisely what the Church of Rome said about the preaching of Martin Luther. They said, this man who is a priest has changed the doctrine in order to justify his own marriage and his own lust. And so this man, they said, is an antinomian, and that is heresy. That is the very charge they brought against him. It was also brought against George Whitfield 200 years ago. It is the charge that formal dead Christianity, if there is such a thing, has always brought against this startling, staggering message that God justifies the ungodly. That is my comment, he says, and it is a very important comment for preachers. I would say to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, then you had better examine your sermons again, and you had better make sure that you are really preaching the salvation that is offered in the New Testament to the ungodly, to the sinner, to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to those who are enemies of God. There is this kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation. Now with that, let's think about other people's sins for a moment. And the sins I have in mind here are the sins of the saints we read of in Scripture. Noah. He makes it through the flood. He plants a vineyard, he gets drunk from the wine he, he makes from the fruit of the vine, and he humiliates himself before his sons. Abraham, twice, he asks his wife not to reveal to men of power, Pharaoh and Abimelech, that she is his wife. He says, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians an antinomian, But I wish I was accused of it more often. What do I mean by that? Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my heroes in the faith, says that it is simply an occupational hazard of preachers if they intend to preach grace that they'll be accused of antinomianism. 
He says this in his exposition of Romans 6. And Romans 6, you know, is, is addressing that question straight on. Shall we sin that grace may abound? And he says, no. Right after he says that you're saved by grace. Right? But no, you don't sin so that grace may abound. There are still commands. But he, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, the true preaching of the gospel is salvation by grace alone. That's a central doctrine in the Reformed Church. The true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of the charge of antinomianism being brought against it. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of grace. If my preaching and presentation of the gospel of salvation does not expose it to that misunderstanding, then it is not the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. He goes on. A couple more paragraphs, but I want, want you to pick this up. If a man preaches justification by works, no one would ever raise this question. If a man's preaching is, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to go to heaven, you must stop committing sins, you must take up good works, and if you do so regularly and constantly and do not fail to keep on at it, you will make yourselves Christians. You will reconcile yourselves to God, and you will go to heaven. Obviously, a man who preaches in that strain would never be liable to this misunderstanding. Nobody would say to such a man, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because the man's whole emphasis is just that. That if you go on sinning, you are certain to be damned, and only if you stop sinning can you save yourself. So that misunderstanding could never arise with somebody who preaches justification by works. Nobody, this is still Lloyd-Jones, nobody has ever brought this charge against the Church of Rome. But it was brought frequently against Martin Luther. Indeed, that was precisely what the Church of Rome said about the preaching of Martin Luther. They said, this man who is a priest has changed the doctrine in order to justify his own marriage and his own lust. And so this man, they said, is an antinomian, and that is heresy. That is the very charge they brought against him. It was also brought against George Whitfield 200 years ago. It is the charge that formal dead Christianity, if there is such a thing, has always brought against this startling, staggering message that God justifies the ungodly. That is my comment, he says, and it is a very important comment for preachers. I would say to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, then you had better examine your sermons again, and you had better make sure that you are really preaching the salvation that is offered in the New Testament to the ungodly, to the sinner, to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, to those who are enemies of God. There is this kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation. Now with that, let's think about other people's sins for a moment. And the sins I have in mind here are the sins of the saints we read of in Scripture. Noah. 
He makes it through the flood. He plants a vineyard. He gets drunk from the wine he, he makes from the fruit of the vine. And he humiliates himself before his sons. Abraham, twice, he asks his wife not to reveal to men of power, Pharaoh and Abimelech, that she is his wife. He says, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, that I may live on account of you. Lot. He offers his virgin daughters to the throng of men who desire to sodomize the angels who have come to visit him. He gets drunk. And his daughters take advantage of him, have sex with him, commit incest, and become pregnant with his children. Jacob. Jacob was the pawn of his mother. He lied to his father. He impersonated his brother. He stole the blessings of his brother Esau. Moses. This man of God led, you know, called to lead the people of God was proud. And of all people, most despicably treated God as unholy. And the Lord said to Moses, go up to this mountain of Abiram and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. When you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. Gideon, after defeating the chronic enemy of Israel, the Midianites, Gideon practices gross idolatry. Fashioning an idol just like Aaron did with the golden calf. Judges chapter 8. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring from there, there from his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendant and the purple robes, which were on the king's Midian, and besides the neckbands that were on the camel's necks. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. So that it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. Jephthah. Jephthah makes a vow before the Lord, promising to sacrifice the first thing out of his house. If the Lord gave him victory in battle, the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter. And it seems he sinned by keeping a rash vow. And sacrificing his daughter. 
When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. And then he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relations with the man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. What about Samuel? Samuel. We're studying Samuel. Samuel was an abdicating, negligent father whose sons were a scourge on Israel. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Behold, your sons, the people were saying, Behold, your sons have, have, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Give us a king. Samuel was part of the reason why they asked for a king. Samuel's sons were. What about King David? King David was an adulterer and a murderer. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with them in all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Solomon. Solomon is a sex-addicted idolater. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. 
He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Malcolm, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chamosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to other gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon. Because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. Peter. Peter was ashamed of the Lord, and he was a racist. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance, and they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together. Peter was sitting among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of those too. But Peter said, Man... I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, writes Paul, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So the best men in Scripture are shown to commit the sins of drunkenness, incest, lying, idolatry, blasphemy, murder, adultery, hatred of children, sex addiction, racism, denial of the Son of God, and hatred of Jesus Christ. And these men are our heroes. If we're honest with about ourselves and lovers of God and his righteousness, but they are our heroes not because they were sinless, right? They have all sinned, and unlike us, their sins are written down for all time in the inspired word of God. And we sit here Ages afterward, reading about their sins. Talk about a billboard of shame. 
That is the thing about the Word of God that distinguishes it from all other so-called holy books. The sins of the best of saints are written large in Scripture. Other books have sinless heroes, squeaky clean men and women, not Scripture. What it teaches is this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the lives of the saints proves it. Now think about it for a few moments about the sins we have loved, that we have committed, and we commit. Let's just take the same list we went through with our scripture examples. Drunkenness, incest, lying, idolatry, blasphemy, murder, abortion, adultery, hatred of children, sex addiction, fornication, straight or gay, racism, denial of the Son of God, hatred of the Son of God. We read the book of Genesis and say, man, that's all messed up. And it takes a half second of thought to think back over the course of your last week and reach the exact same conclusion. Man, messed up. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now remember all of the examples we went through in Scripture, all of those sinful sinners, sinful sinners, are also those whose Scripture commends. All of those names except for Peter are the names found in Hebrews 11. And And there, what are they commended for? Faith. 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 That's it. They are not commended for their sinlessness. They are commended for their faith. They are not commended for having gotten their lives together and having made progress. For their squeaky cleanness, for their perfection. They're commended for one thing, and that's their faith. Their faith in what? Their faith in Jesus Christ. In the power of his death on the cross. In Jesus Christ and the glory of the power of the cross. To take away every one of the sins they committed and would commit. Faith in Jesus Christ. The problem is though that we don't want forgiveness. We're so proud we don't even want forgiveness. We want sinlessness, right? Our pride doesn't want to stoop to having to repent again. Our pride doesn't want to stoop to having to ask God for forgiveness again because that, admi- that means admitting we are sinners. No one likes to do that. But we know in our heart of hearts that we are as evil and wicked and vile as the day is long, and we've been that way today. So the way we tra- so the way we try to attain our sinlessness is to define sin how we like to define sin away. Romans 1:32 says, "And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same but also give hearty approval to those who practice them." And now we've gotten in the habit of applying those verses to other people. There are many ways we try 
To define our sin as not sin. My sin is as a result of my victimhood, therefore not sin. My sin is the result of my personality, therefore it's not sin. My sin is the result of genetics, therefore it's not sin. My sin is the result of evolutionary appetites, therefore it's not my sin. My sin is the result of my culture, right? And we're all a product of of, of of our culture. And what she loves, I will love, therefore it's not sin. And scripture comes in and teaches you that you are wrong at every one of those points. You have loved doing things that God hates, and it is sin. You have thought things, you have touched things, you have put things in the places that God forbids you to put them, and it is sin. And you have followed the pattern of all the unholy saints. Get that? Those two words crashing together. Unholy saints who have preceded you. Saints means holy ones. And the holy ones have been made holy by faith. In Jesus Christ. And the first thing they know, the most essential things they know, the the thing they know above all else is that they have sinned. The holy ones know what it is to fornicate and to murder and to be addicted to pornography and to be drunk for a month straight and to worship trees and to blaspheme and to lust. And by faith, they hate it. By faith, they look outside of themselves because they are just weak sinners in in themselves for something to save them. By faith, they find Jesus Christ, the sinless one whom God provided for their sin sickness. By faith, they deal with their sins rather than explain them away with sophisticated hogwash arguments. By faith, they see Jesus Christ as the way of dealing with their sins, past, present, and future sins. By faith, when they sin, are professing. By faith, they're professing his name when they return to repentance and weep over their sins once again. And by faith, they put to death some of those sins. By faith, they know the strength of their previous life and the newer strength of their current faith. By faith, they know, they feel it in their bones that there is nothing they are or do that God looks on from heaven and says, wow, impressive now. Nothing. By faith, they fall trembling in the presence of a holy God and simply say, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. By faith, they stand up in the presence of a holy God and say, give me Jesus. He is my righteousness. Give me him.
At the top of the list of the things you undoubtedly know as a Christian should be this. God hates sin and I am a sinner. As a Christian, that's what you should know better than anything. God hates sin and I am a sinner. If you are adding any buts to the end of that statement, you're delusional, perhaps unsaved. God hates sin and I am a sinner, but I am not as bad as the next gal. Yes, you are. I'm not, you know, God hates sin. I'm a sinner, but I'm well-educated. No, not well. God hates sin, and I'm a sinner, but I am Southern. Who cares? God hates sin, and I'm a sinner, but I genuinely love people. No, you don't. God hates sin, and I'm a sinner, but I can't help what I am. Really, have you even tried? But, you know, God hates sin and I am a sinner, but God made me this way. Really, each and every time you sin, he's forcing your hand. God hates sin and I am a sinner, but he'll forgive me when I die. God hates sin and I am a sinner, but I am holy. No. No. Not without Jesus Christ. Not without Jesus Christ. All of those additions, those buts, attempt to diminish the real problem of sin, the holiness of God, and the eternal danger of your soul. Why do you think a holy God who sent his son to die for the sins of the world would be so easy and relaxed and cool and chilled out about your sin? The Christian is the very opposite of that. The Christian is alarmed by deeply knowledgeable of, sick and tired of, weary of all those continued sins that we give ourselves over to and that displease God. And knowing this, they are amazed that God would give them grace. Forgiven. They're amazed by God's justifying grace. They realize the depth of the gift they have in the cross. They're in awe of God's patience with them. And so they long to worship and honor this God who has forgiven all of their transgressions. The Christian faith is about the justification of wicked sinners. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, sinner, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're good. Everything is all right. All your sins are forgiven. All the debt has been wiped away. You will be welcomed into the presence of God, clothed in his genuine righteousness. Amen? Let us pray.
Oh, Father, help us to believe that you justify sinners. I pray that in the justifying grace sense of the way of saying this, that we would see striving. That we would cease trusting in our own works to somehow gain favor with you. To cease thinking that it is by not sinning that we justify ourselves before you. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is that your son, Father, justified us when we were enemies and hostile and sinful. Oh, Father, I pray that we would believe it. I pray that we would exalt your Son and his work. I pray that we would stop searching for some sort of boast in our own flesh, but that we would boast in you, boast in the cross, and then be able to be encouraged and lift our heads. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.